Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerskoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. Welcome to this episode of the Insurance Brokers Podcast. On this episode, we are speaking to David Lewis. David has had a long and varied career through WAM organizations, brokers, insurers, and even captive insurers. Welcome, David. Good morning, David. Thank you so much for joining us on the Insurance Brokers Podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. Welcome. Morning, Sarah. Thank you very much indeed. I've been looking forward to this. Really yeah. keen, really keen to get going. It's been in the diary for a couple of weeks, hasn't it? So uh, exciting times. So I thought maybe what might be um, quite interesting, because you have quite an interesting background, is if you can talk us through who you are and what your kind of background is. Well, I'll, I'll certainly try, Sarah, and I'll hopefully not take up the whole podcast while I do it. But um, So I'm David Lewis. Um, I started uh, my insurance career a long way back, back in 1978, when um, I was at Aberystwyth University. I was uh, very bored studying pure mathematics and saw an advert in the South Wales Echo for uh, the Norwich Union, who were looking for a trainee life consultant at the time. And um, much to my mum and dad's dismay, I applied for the job and and got the job. So uh, for the first four years, I was trained by uh, the NU in Cardiff. And then I had something of a a revelation. It, 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 I very quickly realised that the um, the power in the insurer broker relationship, in, in my view at that time, uh, sat very much with the broker. Uh, it was the broker who decided whether they were going to use my services or the services of Norwich Union uh, rather than my expertise. So for me, I wanted to move into broking, get into the sharp end, start talking to clients more, perhaps be in a bit more control of my own destiny. Uh, so in 1982, I moved across to a a uh, small national broker called the Medical Insurance Agency, who uh, specialised in doctors and dentists and nurses insurance. I uh, ran the office in Cardiff for about three years and then finally uh, moved into what I called the big time at, at that time of my career, uh, which was a job with Willis Faber in, in Cardiff. And, and that was really that was really fascinating because um, uh, I joined them as a personal financial planner. I had an interview in Cardiff and apparently that went reasonably well and eventually I got sent up to Trinity Square in, in London for my quite daunting interview with a gentleman called Simon Batt who led the financial planning division at that time and we had quite a long chat about me and my background and, and so on and so forth and then he said to me he said David so do you have a strong technical knowledge and I said well I, th- I think so Mr Batt with, with some degree of trepidation wondering what was about to happen next. And so he said to me, um, so if I ask you to tell me about the inheritance tax laws, you would be able to do that, would you? And I thought, here we go. I said, well, I think I probably would, Mr. Bat, expecting him to then ask me a very detailed question about the inheritance tax laws. But in those days, Willis Faber was a you know great blue chip organization, very much a gentleman's club in the old fashioned sense. And he simply said, well, that sounds good enough to me. Shall we go to lunch? You're welcome to the team. Uh, so um, I didn't get asked any difficult questions. And my career with, with Willis um, started then. About four or five years later, then uh, I moved into the, the general side of the business. We had a, a very... Um, um, visionary managing director in Willis in Cardiff, a guy called Roger Fish, who, when he had a vacancy in the general team to fill, 
didn't feel constrained by my background. It wasn't a case of, well, you've come from the life side, so therefore you can't possibly make the transition to the general side. Uh, and he took a chance on me and offered me this role in the general side of the business, uh, which I took. I headed that up uh, in Cardiff for a few years. And then in the early part of the 90s was invited to go up to Trinity Square in London uh, to take on a, a European role for uh, what was at that point Willis Wrightson. Did that until uh, 2001 before I'd moved across to Marsh McLennan in Tower Place to do pretty much the, the same job, but uh, if I'm honest, for a little bit more money. Um, <laughs> who doesn't? Um, thoroughly enjoyed that and was stayed there until 2007 and then had a what my wife called a midlife crisis. Um, we'd spent a little bit of time in uh, the Algarve in Portugal and got to know a, a fairly well-known property developer down in the Algarve uh, quite well. And I jokingly said to them over a bottle of wine one Christmas, uh, your insurance and risk management is a mess. And if ever you want it done properly, give me a call. And much to my surprise, three months later, they did. They rang me and asked if I'd like to go and join them. Um, and so we moved the whole family to the Algarve, had three of the best years of our lives, I think. Um, it taught me a lot, actually, from a business perspective. Finally, being able to see things from the client's perspective taught me lessons that even in that three-year window, I still remember today. And uh, so it was not only a great time, it was quite a good learning experience for me too. That, that sounds like a, a kind of excellent midlife crisis. That's the I kind of so. midlife That's crisis I want. Midlife crises go, yeah. I thought, yeah. I thought that. <laughs> it's not sports car nonsense. Um, <laughs> so uh, we stayed there for a few years and it was really only when um, our children got to the age where they really needed to move into mainstream education that uh, my wife and I wanted to bring them back to sort of the UK education system. But we got so used to living by the sea, uh, we didn't really want to, to go back into London again. So Willis also had another job, uh, this time in Guernsey in their captive practice. It was um, a consultancy role, something I'd not done uh, before. I was lucky enough to get that job. So we moved to uh, Guernsey um, in around 2010, I think, and uh, worked for the captive practice in Guernsey for a couple of years before coming back to London to head up their consultancy practice for Europe. And then that's a very long rambling story, but uh, two years ago, I then decided to take, um, <laughs> well, I, I jokingly said to my wife, I want to take semi-retirement. It's turned out it's been nothing like semi-retirement. It's more like a full-time job. But I, I left Willis and uh, took up um, consultancy role and a couple of non-executive director positions. I'm now non-exec director for um, a large regional insurance broker, Thomas Carroll, um, I'm the chairman of a uh, very niche insurance business in Cornhill in London, and I act on the board of a couple of uh, charities down here in Cardiff. So a long rambling journey, Sarah, but you did ask. Well, as far as uh, a long rambling journey goes, I think it's a, a fabulous one. And your levels of experience have spanned pretty much everything from insurer through to captive and everything in between. And obviously now you're on your consultancy journey and we've had some uh, some interesting conversations about that. So um, you've touched briefly on where you're at now in terms of the consultancy element of things. What I'm quite interested in is what lessons and values you're able to bring from the WAM organizations mm -hmm. through to the kind of more smaller or mid-sized brokers that you are currently sitting on the NED. Uh, board for as an NED on the board for? Yeah, no, that, that's an interesting question, Sarah. Um, and in fact, I'm going to answer it in a couple of different ways, because um, I think in hindsight, 
uh, and it might surprise you to hear this, but I, I actually feel I've learned more from uh, the regional entities than, than I have for the large organisations because the Willis's and the Aeons and the Marshes have got you know fantastic credentials and and huge resources, but they they do lack agility, they do lack the capacity to be nimble, and and more particularly, more frustratingly in some ways, they they can be very slow at making decisions. There is such a hierarchy that one has to navigate in order to get anything done in one of the, the big organisations that it can be quite frustrating. So although you would absolutely point at the, at the big boys and say, well, they have the resources and, and they have the, the expertise, the breadth and depth of expertise and, and the global reach and all that type of stuff, I'm not really sure at client level uh, that the majority of clients actually see the value for that. I'm sure your, your big multinational organisations probably do. There is a, a comfort in working for a firm that uh, reflects your own size and scale. But I think for the, the vast majority of clients, certainly here in the UK, I'm not entirely sure that's uh, so much of an advantage. The, the work that I've done with um, uh, the regional firms uh, has been quite revolutionary and rev- revelatory, uh, perhaps is more, more appropriate, in that uh, the, the sheer speed at which companies can, can change direction or make decisions or, Im- more importantly, implement decisions, it's, it's very easy to to draw up strategies and make decisions, implementing them is, is a different thing altogether. And, and I find that really, really refreshing. So I, I think um, the benefit for me is being able to, to perhaps bring some of the uh, the organisational skills and some of the ideas from the big organisations, but now to be able to implement them far more efficiently and far more effectively than I ever was at uh, uh, either Willis or, or Marsh. And I suspect the same at Aon. Do you know... Um process is one of the conversations that we have and I know we've had conversations outside of of this podcast about process and the implementation of and I think having the process sometimes the process gets lost in some of the the hierarchical decision making because everybody's on their own process and that's the sort of refreshing thing about the smaller to to mid-sized brokers is exactly as you say you can bring that process together one of the things that we've found and one of the conversations you and I've had is about this larger organizations tend to operate more in a sort of silo type uh, structure. So you might have the marketing department, but how that marketing department interacts and coordinates with other departments sometimes gets lost in, in some of the bigger sizes. Is that something that you've come across? And what kind of things do you think we can put in place in the the mid to larger organizations to try and minimize that impact? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good question, um, Sarah. Let me tackle the, the process issue first and foremost. I, I think the big organizations are, are very good at process. Um, they have the, the resource to introduce and implement and design processes that that for want of a better expression, help them to become more efficient. I think there's a there's a question as to whether that efficiency is actually perceived by the client or whether it's more for the benefit of the organization itself. But sometimes process can actually drive the interaction with the client. We forget that uh, the client really is king here. And whilst processes are really important to improve efficiency and hopefully improve the delivery of service and advice to a client, you can quite easily get a fall into the trap of 
becoming completely process driven and you're almost expecting the client to fit with your process rather than the process meeting the client's needs. And I think some of the big firms are, are guilty of that. I think the process has become so rigid and so formal um, that all clients of all sizes and all shapes and all requirements are expected to fit into that uh, that process category. The, the smaller companies, I think, still need process. They they have the potentially they have the the opposite issue that they can become uh, almost lacking in formality and lacking in process. So there is a need for process in even the, the smaller firms. But again, coming back to this point about agility and nimbleness, they can tailor the processes to not get in the way of the customer service, but to really support the customer's experience. And that I think is is absolutely key. The silo thing actually exists across all time, all sizes of business. The difference is with the smaller and medium-sized broker, it's an easier problem to address. In the large organizations, again, in my experience, they are so driven by silo P&Ls, there is almost no reward or encouragement to sell across lines. Of course, they're, they're told to do that because they, they want to improve the growth for the business, but it's not done in a coordinated way. And it's certainly not done in a way where the client sits at the center of that strategy. The smaller companies, the ones that I'm working with, yes, you, you have silos, but they're much easier to break down, either through geography. It's it's a little bit more difficult now because we're all working from home. But um, when we're back in the office, putting people together in the right way, not simply because they work for particular parts of the business, but putting people together uh, that complement each other's activities and can learn from one another and can work from one another is much easier in a smaller to medium-sized business than it is in a large multinational. So I, I think that um, the silo issue is, is one that both small, medium and large companies struggle with. But in my experience, at least, much easier to resolve with the, uh, the at the smaller end of the scale. I sort of view the silo very similar to what you're saying, the, the, the operational silos that exist within uh, businesses, whether it's departments or geographical locations or, or whatever it might be, and the processes that are implemented, there's almost sort of the next layer up that needs to be considered before you can look at that. And I know some of the conversations we've been having, it's exactly what you're doing in, in, in some of the work you're doing at the moment, which I think is phenomenal. The strategic aim of the business, the direction in which it's going, needs to filter through to the client-facing people at the front. So there's a culture shift that needs to be worked on before you can really get into what the process is. And the culture shift needs to be based on what is best for the client Mm -hmm. and how you're going to facilitate that and your strategic business goals over a, you know, one to five year period or whatever it might be. And then what processes are put in place. And all too often we've seen a real uh, attempt to, to do this, but the difficulty is everybody's working on a different sheet of paper because everybody's priorities are different. And what I've found really refreshing in some of the stuff we've been talking about is bringing the culture and the mindsets on board, both at a senior leadership level and then working out how we bring that through to the client-facing staff so that everybody is aligned to and working towards the same goal. To put it, to give it like a tangible example, I did a, I had a, a meeting with Mike Keating a while ago now. And one of the things he was saying is about the insurers saying, right, we need a 20% rate increase Mm -hmm. across the board. And the individual underwriters at frontline 
reading that uh, is a blanket 20% rather than let's you know, move it as it needs to be from the, the the good and bad risks and making sure we don't, you know, lose good risks because we're applying something blindly and, and we keep the bad risks because we should be applying more. That's sort of one of the the tangible examples from this kind of strategic aim and and, and the processes and the way that the culture shift is filtered down is, is not quite working. What kind of examples have you come across in the sort of WAM organizations um, of that type of thing? And what are you coming across in the, the smaller organizations and what, what parallels can we draw? I think with the larger organizations, cultural shift is always going to be uh, a real challenge because, you know, if you, the, the definition of culture is that everybody within the business needs to feel and breathe the same strategy. They all need to understand why they're doing the things that they're being asked to do. They need to understand the impact of what they're doing, not only on their client, but on their business and on themselves as well. Everybody really needs to to get it. And with an organization of of tens of thousands, that's quite a, a, a difficult thing to achieve. So the large organizations talk about cultural change and they talk about cultural shift because it's a it's a trendy thing to talk about, but actually implementing it is far more difficult. And you made the point that the, the senior leadership team comes up with their strategy and wants to change the culture of the business. But it has to it has to percolate through so many different levels. Uh, both territorially, geographically, and culturally, that by the time the message gets to the shop floor, it's largely dissipated, and it's really difficult to maintain the intensity of of the strategy at that level uh, by the time you've gone through all those levels. Um, With the organisations I'm working with uh, now, that is less of a challenge. But having said that, there are still things I think that need to be done in order to be successful in making these changes. I've always believed right the way through my career that the team I work with need to be treated almost as equals. They need to absolutely be part of the decision-making process. Now, that's not to say that I'm, I'm sort of devolving authority and I know somebody has to lead and has to give direction to a business. But once you've chosen your direction, it's, it's really incumbent upon leadership to then convince and to sell that concept to the people who are expected to deliver it. So the work that we've been doing in in a number of the different organizations that I'm working for has to start at that level. Yes, the leadership decides the direction of the business. They decide what they want the business to look like, where they want it to go, and how that is going to impact on the client experience. But then you can't do cultural change to people. You, You have to engage people in that cultural change process. And so my style is typically to explain to people what we're trying to achieve and to really work with them to to make that become a living, breathing ethos. So rather than just say, this is what we're going to do and this is what you're going to do to help me achieve it, it's much better if we can get everybody to understand why we're doing what we're doing and to understand what the benefits will be so that they can then communicate it to their teams and in turn to their teams with the same degree of passion and intensity that the leadership team had in the first instance. So it's not always practical because sometimes big businesses, you can't always put your arm around entire teams. But with the smaller and medium-sized entities, it is much easier provided you're aware of the need to do it and secondly, take the steps necessary to bring people alongside you. I think that concept of do 
with, not to, is quite an important one from a leadership and management perspective across the board, whether you are a you know five-man team or a 5,000-man team. I think also part of, if we, if we take it from the strategic conversation, the high-level conversation down to um, sort of practical, uh, tangible things that, that uh, companies are trying to do now, can you give us some examples or, 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 or thoughts about changes that you've seen? So I'll give you an example and then, and then let me know. So for example, to turn a, a, a smaller business from sort of a silo orientated to a customer centric, and I know you know who I'm thinking of in this conversation, to a customer centric approach around all the different elements of the business, there are a number of factors that need to be considered right through from the confidence of the front staff to move, you know, the client around all the different parts of the business and understand all the different parts of the business. So the confidence through to the trust between uh, uh, staff and employees in different departments. So there are a number of different factors when you're trying to make the strategic level to get them filtered down to the front level. Can you give us some of your insight and thoughts and what, what you've come across and how you've sort of started to overcome them for anybody listening that's trying to do a similar kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely, Sarah. I mean, you, you touch on a really important point that if people continue to work in their individual silos, if they're if they're client executives going out and talking to clients all the time, or if they're part of the risk management team offering risk consultancy services, or if they're part of other parts of the business offering uh, additional services and facilities and solutions to to a client. There is, it is a really difficult job getting those different silos working together unless they trust each other, first and foremost. And what do I mean by that? Well, we've all heard the stories of client executives saying, well, I'm not introducing them to my business anymore because the last time I introduced them, something went terribly wrong um, and, and therefore it threatened the business relationship. That's very, very counterproductive. Um, so the first thing you have to do is 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 not treat people and not treat them as silos. Yes, they all have different jobs, they all have different functions, but they are all trying to achieve the same thing, which is delivering a, an holistic and comprehensive service to their collective client. Uh, and so you, you have, the only way you're going to get around that is by, I say, forcing people to work together putting people in a position where they will naturally work together. So, for example, if you have a common client or you have a client where you feel that different parts of the business could be usefully engaged with that client, then when you're talking about your client strategy, your renewal strategy or your new business strategy or your prospecting strategy, then bring people together from different parts of the business at stage one. Again, if you look at prospecting or even renewal business, it's it's so common for client executives to to focus on the renewal, focus on all the issues around renewal. And then when they realize perhaps they're into competition, how can I defend myself? Let's bring the risk management guys in. Let's bring the employee benefits people in. They're almost brought in as a last resort because they're forced to. My view is that you should create a process by which those people are naturally engaged in all of those discussions as a matter of tr- of course, and, and make that part of the, we've used the word before, make that part of the culture of the, the business and the way that you provide service to customers. I think if, if, if a company can crack that, which you guys are well on the way to doing, 
then that is such an incredible USP for the company because it's like a machine that is well-oiled and working together rather than sort of separately. And I think that that very, very niche concept of bringing all different parts together is is such um, a needed sort of shift in, in the way the industry is at the moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, can I just expand on that very slightly, Sarah, because I'm sure that anybody listening to this has heard many times in the past that we need to get people working together. You know, it's a mantra that everybody talks about and we all know it's the right thing to do we all know from a client perspective it's it's what enhances the service that we provide is to bring more opinions more perspectives more views and more solutions to a client at any one point everybody talks about it the difficulty with implementation is this cultural attitude that if you tell people you are going to work together you are going to collectively look at a particular client. They will do it, but they will do it reluctantly, and they won't really understand why they're doing it. So the key to this is the point we made previously, is that you have to tell people why they're doing it, and you have to really sell it to them so that they absolutely get it, that they don't see it as a threat to introduce a colleague. They don't see it as uh, outside of their normal scope of activities, not my job that they see it as part of their day-to-day task to provide better service to the client. So you, you can introduce all these processes and you can tell people what to do, but the key still is the way in which you communicate it and you sell it to people. And that's about trust in the leadership. It's about confidence in the team. And it's about sharing rather than telling. And that, I think, is the big difference between the successful firm and the less successful firm. I might add to that, and say it's also about engagement and early engagement of all parties where possible. And one of the things that, one of the tools that we use, which you have been part of, uh, is sort of this tool whereby you get everybody that needs to engage in this process, whether you start at the senior leadership level or whether you are, you know, in the the, the client-facing individual teams, and you work through a series of processes which really starts to engage and bring out how people really feel about a certain aspect. So, for example, you might be looking at the company goals. How well do you understand the company goals? How how well do we implement them? How well do you work together with other teams? And you start to bring out the individual's sort of maybe problems or confidences or, or, you know, things they're really good at, things they're really not. And you start to enable a conversation that opens people up. And once you've got that openness, that's when you can see, right, the pain points are here, here and here. Together, we will collaborate to fix them. And you start to bring in all of that brilliant stuff you were just saying about getting uh getting the sort of the mind shift and and really selling it because there's an engagement in that selling process and we use um we use a particular tool and we go through five different stages and the conversations that come out of that are really really interesting particularly when you do it with a different group and i found it quite interesting when you do the same um you do the same uh, exercise with the senior leadership as you do with the front line and the 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 stark difference is is quite fun to watch actually as well as you know the kind of stuff it brings out so I think it's really really important one of the things that I wanted to ask your thoughts on obviously you are a non-exec director so 
pseudo outsourced, pseudo insourced, if that makes sense, if you know where I'm trying to get at. So. So, so you kind of sit in quite an interesting place. And one of the things that I've seen happen is I've seen it both in the, the WAM organizations and in, in smaller brokers is outsourcing certain parts of the business, whether it's marketing, whether it's change management, whether it's, you know, IT security, whatever it might be. How do you think that fits with an organization when you're trying to make this culture shift and you're trying to bring everybody on board? Do you think outsourcing is a, is a positive? What things do you look for in that kind of relationship? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, first of all, to answer the question about outsourcing itself, I think the outsourcing can be incredibly valuable. I think it, it's naive for any company, and I'd, I'd actually include even some of the big companies in this, to presume that they have all the skill sets necessary at all times to deliver all of the the activities and changes that they want to to bring in. So I think being open-minded as a leadership team to the benefits of outsourcing uh, is important. I think you've got to be big enough to say, actually, we don't know all the answers and and actually we could benefit from a different perspective and a different viewpoint. The the key to it, um, again, it comes back to this uh, sort of cultural engagement. You, you, your outsource supplier uh, really needs to get the culture of the business, or at least the direction of the business in which the business is is travelling. The mistake you don't want to make, I think, as a business, is to bring in a, an outsource uh, supplier uh, simply so you can tick the box that we provided this service or this training or this advice, and then expect things to change because they they absolutely won't. They'll change for a couple of months and then everybody will go back to doing what they did before or or largely. But I think if you can work with an outsourced supplier as, as we've worked together that really is prepared to invest time in understanding how the business works and, and really the heartbeat of the business, what where the business truly wants to go. And again, provided your outsource supplier is embraced by the entire team. And and again, I don't want to impose outsource services on people. I want them to understand where the benefit is coming from, from that outsource service and be part of the positive decision-making to bring that outsource supplier in. If you can do it the right way, then I think outsourcing is a is a really valuable strategy because most businesses don't have the resource or capabilities or expertise to do everything themselves. But you've got to do it in the right way. I think so too. And I, uh, as a, an organisation that you know is almost an outsource capability to certain certain businesses, I almost think the word outsource is a dirty word and it's a little bit cheesy. But sort of the the partnership approach is a much more uh, or much preferable, much more preferable. My English language is excellent approach to um, to it, and I think it's really, really important. I think one of the the things that can become unstuck is when you are either working with a big uh, organization or are a big organization. Is some of that decision making and implementation mm-hmm. processes can get a bit slowed up, mm-hmm. and that's why I think sometimes outsourcing can be can be difficult because if you've got so many different chains to go through on both sides, it can get quite quite awkward. But I I hundred percent agree with you, and I think I think as a, a as an outsourced supplier, you have to be really careful about the type of organisations you work with because it, it's 
it's a fundamental human to human relationship mm-hmm. that needs to be understood at the base level before you can get the partnership right, before you can really understand each other's uh, business because it's a give and take process. So I think it's quite an interesting perspective. Do you think there's um do you think there's a place for outsourcing in the WAM companies right through to the the small brokerages? And what do you think the pros and cons of, of both are? Yeah, I'm going to I, say partnering. Partnering. Yeah, partnering is a much better word. By the way, I totally, I totally agree with you on on, on that. Um, I, I, with the, the, the larger firms, the, the the WAM companies, as you as you call them, I think the question was: Is there a place for outsourcing? And, and the answer is absolutely, there is. Do the WAM organisations always accept that they don't have the expertise in house themselves? No, I don't think they do. I think um, I think they can become uh, a little bit insular. Uh, they are sometimes reluctant to accept that they they may not always have the best solutions and the best ideas and the best capabilities. Uh, So the answer is yes, I think absolutely there is a place for outsourcing with the WAM companies. I think they're less receptive to outsourcing. It does happen. Most of the outsourcing that I, I saw particularly sort of this type of training that I saw at Willis and, and indeed at Marsh, frankly, was wasted. Uh, you know, we went through training courses, we went through webinars, we went through meetings, and all very interesting. And about a month later, we'd all forgotten what, was, what we were taught, because it's far more difficult with such a large organisation for you to create that personal connection that is the foundation of a proper partnership. You know, partnership is about personalities and people trusting each other and people really understanding what makes each other tick. Very, very difficult in a large, large organisation. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the big advantages for smaller firms. I think if um, uh, the smaller firm uh, has the vision to understand where outsourcing can supplement what they do, and obviously there's a cost involved to that, but I think most companies, if they look at outsourcing properly and they've they've really considered carefully what type of outsourcing they want, they would see it as an investment, not as a cost. And I think the benefit then of that outsourcing relationship, provided you choose the right partner, is exponentially more valuable than it is with the large organisations because you can really create the connection and that long-term partnership that uh, you just can't do with um, the big multinationals. Do you know, I think that's interesting and I want to add to it again because there's there's um, a bit of R&D work that we're doing within Boston Tullis at the moment. One of the things we're, we're finding is exactly what you've just said, that webinar, that a morning training session that I did, a month later, it's gone. Mm. And that's because as a general rule, as humans, we're in a reactive nature. We're, you know, we're reacting to the day-to-day tasks and the webinar is requiring a proactive approach. So there's Mm. almost a shift that you need to make there. So one of the things that I believe really passionately, and like I say, we're doing some R&D work at the moment, is that the half-day webinar is not what you need you need short, daily, consistent training that is scenario-based. Mm-hmm. So you can really understand this abstract concept that you've spent half a day telling me about. Give me Joe Bloggs of construction firm X that had problem Y, that the risk managers helped, the employee benefits helped, the, 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 you know, this is the commercial mm-hmm. combined policy they had, whatever it might be. Give me that scenario and then give me short information clips about what I could be doing in those and do it every day, repetitively, just a few minutes that you can fit into your day-to-day life. Because that type of learning fits the sort of the generational and societal changes we're going through now. I mean, 
my kids don't watch any program for longer than five minutes. It's YouTube mm-hmm. and it's quick flash. But, and that's the mindset that actually the younger generations are in. And even I'm bite-sized quick and my attention's gone. So I, I, we're doing some R&D on how you can get some of this information and, and really valuable learning integrated into the culture at the front line and all the way up, because I think that's where real change, real change comes from. I, th- I think you're absolutely right, Sarah. And I, I'm going to give you sort of two responses to that, two almost analogies, if you, if you like. Um, uh, one of the things that, that we've been very keen to to introduce in our business is to, to make sure that everybody that uh, touches a client relationship is more of a risk advisor, risk consultant than an insurance broker or an employee benefits specialist. So that we're having conversations with the client about uh, what what are really what are the really important things to them? What are things that are going on in their world? And let's listen to what's going on in their world, and then let's try to provide them with a solution to it. And that's not overly dissimilar to what you've just described, that as a trainer, if you come in and say, this is the way to do things in a two-hour slot, and, and, and without actually asking what is it you're doing and what is it that's important to you, then you're largely wasting your, your time and, and you're telling rather than helping. Uh, and the second analogy I'd use is, is perhaps a very much a, a lockdown analogy. Um, like, a, like a lot of people, I suspect that uh, uh, some of us have been using the the last 12 months or so to try and learn a, a new language. And we've all used Duolingo and Rosetta Stone and all that type of stuff. And, and everybody will accept, I think, that uh, simply going to a French class or, or doing a French module online is helpful. But unless you are immersed in the language day in, day out, it's never going to stick in here. The best way to learn a language is to be immersed in the language. And that's exactly the same as the thing you've just described. Unless you're immersed in it and are really living and breathing it, it's really difficult to then teach because the teaching will go in one ear and out the other ear. We are conditioned as as individuals, I think, to learn from experience, not learn from telling. And, um, most of us did our O-levels and GCSEs, and most of that is is just regurgitating what we've been told by the teacher. How many of us can remember that a month later? I know my son's gone. I certainly can't. In fact, my husband often tells me he wants to write to the um, exam board for who did my, who I did my English A-level through and have it revoked when I get an apostrophe <laughs> wrong or something, which I think is entirely unfair uh, based on what you've just said, um, because obviously I'm not immersed in English language. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, <laughs> bad example. Um, but I think what you're saying is is absolutely right. And I'll I'll add again to what what I I, I think you've said is immersion and interest. Deliver it to me in a way that that I can relate to. It needs to be relatable rather than abstract. And sometimes I think that's quite a difficult thing to do as a trainer or a coach is to find that particular person's relatable point, something that's going to draw them in, particularly if you're doing it to a group of people. And that's why I think a varied solution with different angles coming at a group of people daily, you know, you're going to hit something somewhere. And once you've got that engagement, the process and the, the retention of the information is, 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 is key. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also re-emphasizes the, the point we've made a couple of times that, um, you know, before you start telling people what's important to them, you need to invest some time finding out what's relevant to them. 
because if it's not relevant, then it's it's a pointless exercise. And and actually, what's one one thing I wanted to, to mention that as um, a non-executive director, I think a, a, a good NED actually is at a bit of an advantage to your traditional leadership team because positioned properly, a non-executive director can be seen as more independent than part of the established executive team. And uh, certainly, I've spent some time over the last 12 months talking to people in, in the business, very much on an anonymous, confidential basis. And it's really surprising what you pick up from that type of conversation, which you may not have picked up had you been their line manager or or their managing director. So that, that little bit of independence is sometimes a key to unlocking this um, uh, this sort of inner relevance conversation that you just referred to. We've had a similar experience. One of the things we do at Boston Tullis is we do renewal surgeries for brokers and we do it um, on a one-to-one basis with all of the account execs. Mm -hmm. And because we are that independent, you see that there's more openness about, well, actually, I'm really struggling with this because this happened, this happened, this happened. So you get to to identify training needs, pain points, confidence issues, as well as early indications of problems that might be coming up in in sort of future renewals. So we found uh, exactly that same thing. It doesn't it doesn't surprise me. I mean you're coming you're coming to it from the same perspective as me. You're independent, you're non-judgmental, you're you are more seen to be there to help than you are to 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 judge people. But it all comes back to relationship because I I, I think that even executive leadership teams can can learn from this. The more that they can engage with their their staff and their teams and the more their teams can genuinely trust them and talk to them openly the more successful a business will be so i think it's um it's not just something that we as independents can can deliver to a business i think it's uh, something that uh, an executive leadership team should be considering as well and uh, i have to say fortunately the firms i work with are very good at that yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a, um, a sort of a, a final question for you, but it's probably not a short one. And I'll try not to make it 27 in one question. Um, the world has changed, right? The last 12 months, mm-hmm. the entire world has changed in mm-hmm. so many ways. And some of those changes, I think, are probably here to stick. I don't think will the Zoom era will, will disappear quickly. Mm-hmm. I think might reduce, but I think it's probably here to stay in in many, many organizations. I've had conversations with our clients uh, and with prospects about how they've tried to use this 12 months to pivot, to change direction or to put some, I know Thomas Carroll have done a huge amount of work in terms of the the internal infrastructure, whether it's technical, whether it's um, sort of, you know, strategic, huge amount of work and a lot of organizations have started to think this way mm-hmm. what do you think is coming in the next five years or so for our industry and I, I'm not particularly talking about the fact that PI rates are going through the roof or, or any of that kind of stuff I mean from a from a, a management structural kind of perspective what opportunities are there what should we be looking for as a small or a big organization and jumping on I mean that is a big question Sarah but I'll try try and give you a reasonably concise answer I mean first and foremost you're you're obviously absolutely right the last 12 months have been transformational for in the way that we've all behaved and I'm a I'm a very firm advocate and, and I've said this on on numerous occasions 
that uh, you know we we mustn't think that the last twelve months have forced us to do stuff um, because that has sort of negative connotations. I think there's a a fantastic amount of really positive change that has happened as a consequence of us needing to change the way we do things. And th- there's nothing better than a face to face meeting. But I think that we have learned that we actually can work remotely now. The systems have been very robust and and our people have been incredibly flexible and resilient in uh, learning how to work in in this new world. And we don't want to lose that. Uh, That's not to say that we won't be bringing people back into the office uh, you know, as soon as we possibly can, because this personal engagement is so important. And some of the things we talked about earlier about having people working alongside one another so that they're sharing client experiences and, and client servicing is all key. But there's so many things that, that have happened that uh, we really must embrace for, for the future in the way that we de- deliver to clients. From a management perspective, one thing it is absolutely forced senior leadership teams to do is to face issues that in the past they would have regarded as almost taboo. That there is a tendency amongst, particularly the small and media, medium firms, I think, to sort of just tick along and, and just carry on doing what we're doing and just try and expand our reach a little bit more and protect what we've got. And I think what we've learned over the last 12 months is that that is no way forward. There are so many things that um, uh, we can and should be doing now to embrace the modern world that it would be an absolute tragedy if senior leadership's teams didn't step up and take that challenge. And amongst the things that I think we need to be doing is greater empowerment of people, trust people in our teams more, share more with them, collaborate more with them, take their views on things. Again, one of the the, the, the huge benefits that, that I've noticed from some of the work we've been doing in recent times is that people that don't work in a particular business stream have some really interesting and perceptive observations about the way other business streams operate. Simply because they're not immersed in it, they see it from a different perspective. So trust your entire workforce to have valuable views. We've done a lot in terms of trying to encourage our younger staff to contribute to our future direction. Younger staff, they don't have the experience, but they're not also constrained by the past either and convention. They do have new and different views to share. And some of those are really, really valuable to a business. So I would embrace your younger workforce and give them a platform to talk about what might happen in the future and where a business might go. In terms of structure, digitalization is a huge issue. We've been forced to become more digitally efficient over the past 12 months. Let's keep that process going because the old style of insurance broker will still have a place. But if you want to grow at the rate that most businesses say they want to grow, you have to embrace other types of market, other types of transaction. So embrace digitalization as well. And and just think a little bit more creatively. I mean, one of the things that the pandemic has taught us is that the, the old norms no longer exist. And, you know, we have to be sufficiently visionary to to look at things that perhaps in the past would have been inconceivable. So I think you need a degree of more open-mindedness at the very top of a business too, um, because closed-mindedness is going nowhere. Do you know what? I agree. And again, to add to that, a few things on top of COVID that I think are incredibly important in the direction that we're going are 
the sort of, I don't know, I get confused whether it's Gen Y, Gen Z, Millennial, I don't know which one's which. But essentially, the younger generations are so attuned to technology that I think it's really important that we're embracing that. But also, one of the first podcasts I did for the Insurance Broker podcast was with Peter Cullum. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he was saying was that by 2030 or, you know, whenever it might be, actually, the insurance industry is going to change. The big boys, Amazon, the Googles are going to sort of almost own it. And we need to be thinking about those type of changes because it's all digital. It's all algorithm based. There are all kinds of studies going on that are doing technical underwriting using algorithms and computers and all that kind of stuff. It's happening. It's coming. What can we do to kind of work with it? And I think it's really, really important to, to keep that in mind. And just a sort of a non-business anecdote, my son started a new school on the 5th of January on an iPad with a new teacher, you know, new classmates, et cetera. Mm-hmm. He started school back at school when uh, schools went back, feeling like he knew that school and the teacher and, and some of the, the kids in it, mm-hmm. because to him, almost that that Zoom has has built a relationship that enabled him to feel confident going in that that I felt that I mean how many zoom calls have we had and we've never met in person no, but uh, when I realized that it's a bit of a surprise and that you know that that idea is really well worth embracing that generational thing the other thing is that I wanted to add which I nearly forgot um, I read a book by Charles Handy called The Second Curve Mm-hmm. Really interesting book. Highly recommend everybody read it. And it's about sort of the the circular changes that go on in society and in business and at what point you need to jump to be really successful, the cutting edge, the bleeding edge, whatever you want to call it, recognizing where that second curve is coming and then jumping on it. And it was Peter Cullum that told me to read uh, Charles Handy. And I really, really enjoyed that book. Mm-hmm. And I think the second curve has been massively uh, pressed fast forward on throughout COVID and it's worth us all having that kind of visionary thinking to move forward. I mean, one thing I've said on um, a few times on LinkedIn as, as, as well, we hear a lot now about looking forward to getting back to normal. I think the successful business won't be going back anywhere. The successful business will embrace, and I hate this phrase, the new normal. They will take this opportunity for true transformation. If they don't, then I think they've got problems. But I think this is a once in a, let's hope, once in a lifetime, catalytic opportunity to really change our behaviours, really embrace cultural change, and really make a difference. And and for my part, I'm all for embracing that. I think that is a phenomenal ending point and that uh, what you've just said is it will be a really good quote for this podcast so thank you very much and to anybody listening that wants to have a conversation about you know within your business the type of changes that you can make I'm sure David or or Boston Tullis or both will be happy to have a conversation with you about it thank you very much David thanks it's been a pleasure thank you for listening to today's episode if you have enjoyed what you have heard have any questions or feedback please leave us a review and we will be sure to get back to you If you would like further information on how Boston Tullis Group can support your business, or if you would like to join us on an episode, please do not hesitate to contact us.